Hey guys, I'm so happy that you're with us tonight. My name is Justin. I'm the kids pastor here at Edgewater. Um, hope you guys sang along. That was really, really good. Glad that we got to hear that. Um, tonight, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 15. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Um, it immediately follows the events of Exodus chapter 14, which is the crossing of the Red Sea, if you weren't with us last week, where God had led his people through, delivered them out of Egypt, out of the hands of Pharaoh, and now they're on the other side of the sea, and they're God's people now, and now they're going to begin their journey. But before we start looking into the wilderness journey and the experience and the hardships they go through, we get the song of Moses, which is kind of funny, right? Especially considering who Moses is when we're introduced to him. Like the first dialogue that we get from Moses, the first time we see him speaking and him talking to God, he actually comes up with a bunch of reasons for why God shouldn't choose him. God, I'm not good at this. I'm the wrong guy for this reason. No one will believe. No one will listen to me. He gives all these reasons to God. And one of them is in Exodus 4, verse 10. It says this, but Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. So when we first get introduced to Moses, he says, I'm not good at speaking, God. I don't want to talk to the public. I don't want to talk to the people in charge. I don't want to speak at all. And what's interesting is when New Testament believers look back at Moses, like Stephen in Acts chapter 7, when he refers to Moses, he said, Moses was mighty in words and deeds. And right now, in the chapter we're going to be looking at, Exodus 15, he's actually writing a song, but not only writing it, but he's going to be singing it and leading the entire nation in song. Completely different than when we first meet Moses, which is super encouraging for me, that Moses, from when we first meet him to who he is now, he's been completely transformed. He's a completely different human being. And it's really reminiscent to me of Judges chapter six, when we're introduced to a guy named Gideon, where Gideon's this lowborn, scared kid. He's insignificant. No one cares about his opinions or his thoughts or his feelings about anything because he doesn't matter. Those are his own words as he's describing his position and his place. And God, when he shows up to Gideon, he says, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, not me. You can't be talking about me, but he is. And it, to me, it's so encouraging because if you look at people like Moses, who when we're introduced to him, he's one way, and now he's singing and praising and leading people in song. And Gideon, who's, I, I, I can't possibly be a mighty man of valor, but God sees all the potential that's in him. God sees you and he sees me, not where we're currently at where when I look at my life and I look at all of my faults and my failures and all the ways I compare to other people, and I could even say, well, God, you can't use me because of all of these things. And you can't use me because of my past history. You can't use me because of my family history, the things that I've been through or my friends have been through. God, you can't possibly use me. But our God, he sees you for all the potential that he's created you to be. When he sees Gideon, he doesn't see him as some punk hiding away. He sees him as a mighty man of valor. You're the person I've chosen to lead these Israelites out of the hands of the Midianites. And when he sees Moses as this scared, this 
person that can't speak well, he knows, nah, you're the person that I'm going to have to deliver my people, to, to lead them out. And then Moses right now, he's singing this song, just excited. He's transformed. No one would recognize him for where he's been. Where he needed someone to speak for him to Pharaoh, now he's singing to the people in public for everyone to join in. And I think that as followers of this very same God that Moses is singing about, we as believers, we're also called to sing. It comes up over and over again in the Bible that we really should be people who sing to God. And that's why I think it's so important that we start our services with song like we've continued to do. There's, as I looked at a bunch of different pastors and churches and people that I really respect and look up to all over America, there's quite a number of churches that have opted out of singing where they said, yeah, we're not gonna do it. And their reason was, it's kind of awkward to ask people to sing in their homes, you know? Like, they might not be good at it. And they, it's, it's kind of weird, you know? But it, I bet you it's awkward for Moses, don't you think? Like, I don't know if you've ever been at Edgewater when we've introduced a song, but it can get awkward. It could be, okay, we're gonna sing that. Please stop clapping. We'll teach you when to clap. It could get a little awkward. And nothing in this song rhymes or repeats. It's line after line after line. It could have got a little awkward. But man, we're called to sing as believers. And part of the reason is, I think, because you get some imagery that you can't really express in normal conversation. You get to use imagery in song that would be strange to convey in just a standard way. And there's some of that in this song that we're going to look at today. I think songs allow for us, especially in this circumstance, to have believers all over Grants Pass, all over our city, confessing the same truths about our God at the same time, where it's not just you listening passively, but it's we get to actively respond to a living God together. And you know that you're not just doing it alone in your house or with your spouse or with your kids, but you're singing with all the other saints in the valley, praising the same God, confessing the same truths. Oh, Jesus lives. And I know he's got me and he's got plans for me. It's so good. And the, my, one of my favorite things about songs is they just get stuck in your head. That's why I think it's so important, the kind of songs you choose to listen to and sing and kind of ruminate yourself in. Because as you're going through the day, you'll have songs pop up. And those songs could be either, God, how great you are, or it'll be some pop star singing, guys, look at how great I am. I think it's really important that we remember who we listen to and why we listen to it. And it's because, man, I want to listen to truth because I want that in my head all day. And so this song that we're going to look at today Exodus 15, it gives us three reasons why we should worship our God. And this isn't the only reasons. It's not an exhaustive list that it gives us. It gives us what I think are three really good reasons for singing and praising our God. And the first one is our team has won. This song looks at my team won. And because my team has won, I've won. Because my team has victory, I have victory. The second reason is we serve an incomparable God. There's no one, nothing like our God. There's no one next to him. There's no one above him. There's nothing more worthy of our praise or our focus or our worship than our God. And finally, the last thing that this song points to is we are inheritors of a future hope. Our God's got a plan and a purpose for us and something so much greater than even the best this world has to offer. We are inheritors of a future hope. So let's look at today, 
Exodus chapter 15, the first 10 verses are, our team has won. And I'm going to try not to stop a lot, but I do want to point out some really interesting and fascinating and fun things about this song. So Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. So why is Moses Moses? Why is he the person that we get today? Well, it might be because he had a godly dad. It might be because as he's reflecting on his life and he's reflecting on this God that he's now following, he's thinking, this is my father's God. This is the God that he had always talked about. Because we know that Moses for a season was with his parents. He could have been three or four when he went to move the Egyptians, maybe six. He was young. And at some point he went and was educated by the Egyptians as he lived in Pharaoh's own house where they would have served many different gods. They were polytheistic. They were pagan. What their whole goal was, whichever God performs the function that I am desiring, that's the God that I worship. Whichever God is practical and will give me what I need, I'll worship that God. And then, as you know, Moses, he makes a rash decision and he ends up becoming exiled out in the wilderness for 40 years. And while he's out there, he marries a woman whose father is a priest of a Midianite God, a completely different God. So he's known a lot of gods. He's seen a bunch of gods. But now, as Moses thinks about this God that he's following and what he's led them through and what God has done, he goes, this is my father's God. Man, dads are so important. Godly dads are so important. Right now, we have opportunities to invest in our kids, to talk to them about the Lord, to teach them who Jesus is through our actions, our conversations, the way that we go through hard times, probably more than ever before. Even just the way that you deal with stressful, difficult circumstances can show them the God that you trust in. And as your kids get older, who are they going to say that your God is? Are they going to say, well, my God, he, his, my dad's God was his phone or his money or his career or his authority, or sports, or the weekend. Who are kids going to say your God is? And even then, if you're someone who goes, okay, I'm going to be so intentional. I'm going to use this time, and I'm going to just really teach them about God. Man, I don't, I don't, it can be really hard to come out as a good dad, you know? Because there's a lot of people in the Bible who are really godly, who really love the Lord, but they're really terrible dads. In fact, one of my favorite books to teach kids out of is the book of Samuel. You have Samuel chapter one and Samuel chapter two, and it's chock full of awesome dudes who are really terrible dads. So like the book opens with this guy named Eli, and Eli loves the Lord. He serves God. He works in the church as a priest, but his sons rob from the church and they steal from the people who are coming to worship there. And they even sleep with the women that are coming to praise God in the church. And Samuel, he ends up being raised with Eli and God tells Samuel, Hey, it's because of his kids that he's not fit for service anymore. And he's going to die because of it. 
So Samuel's raised in that environment and God does something very unique with Samuel where he says, every word that came out of Samuel's mouth didn't fall to the ground. So Samuel walks with God. He talks with God and what he says, God blesses and it happens. And he was raised with Eli. So he wouldn't make the same mistakes, right? But the Bible tells us that his kids are so bad that the nation of Israel says, yeah, we don't want prophets to tell us what to do anymore. We want a king like everyone else has, like all the other nations have. And you even have David, who's a man after God's own heart. But like we spent so many weeks looking at the Psalms, he was a pretty bad dad. You can have one outlier kid and go, okay, maybe he's still a bad, maybe he's still a good dad. But you have a one son who wants to murder you. You have one son who raped his sister and you have the other son who's depressed and a womanizer. He's probably not a good dad. And what's so interesting to me about the book of Samuel is you do have one good dad and his name is Saul. And he's got the only rock star kid in the entire book whose name is Jonathan. And it's really funny to me and, and thinking through, why is that? How come the one guy who does everything wrong has got the only good kid? And this is kind of what I think. I think that when Samuel, he called the people of Israel together and he said, hey, there's a king. We're going to have a king now because you guys have decided that's what you're going to want. That's what you need. There's going to be a king when, but Saul's not there. And when Samuel finally meets up with Saul and says, you're the guy God chose, Saul goes, what are you talking about? We don't have kings here. We listen to you. We listen to God. Saul wasn't there. Saul wasn't with all the other people in the center of the city. I think Saul was at home with his family on the farm and he was working with his son, trying to teach him to be a hard worker, to be responsible, to be generous, to be honest. I mean, as you look at Jonathan, that dude's a stud. That dude's spot on, but all the other guys, man, not so much. And I think the reason that that is, is because we as men, we are always looking for the next thing. There's always something else that could occupy us. There's always the next job, the next opportunity, the next thing that could benefit us and all these things that we have to do. And a lot of it is good stuff. And with technology, well, we take that home with us, don't we? We're on our phone a lot where before the work week could end and you could clock out. Now you technically clock out, but you're still on your phone and you're thinking about the next thing you gotta do and the next, all this extra stuff, even when you're playing with your kids. There's this, the call you have to take the extra job, someone in need, it could be really good things, but there's always something else that could occupy us and take us away from our kids. And I think what our kids really need is for us to get off our phone, get on our hands and knees and spend real concentrated time with them. My friend James has got this really great saying where he says, eventually all you're doing is you're trading your hours for a few extra dollars. And it made me really think how much worth do I put on my kid's childhood? Because when I lose it, there's no amount of money in the world that could ever buy it back. And right now I have an opportunity and I've got an ear, I've got a voice in their life that I'll never have again. Once it's gone, it's gone. And I want my kids to know who my God is. And I want when they get older for them to know there's truth here. There's something good here. There's wells that won't run dry here. I got a friend who he got into drugs when he was 13. His family got divorced, everything blew up. He had to go live with grandma, things got crazy. He got really into drugs. And when he was 29, he started really getting into heroin. And um, up in Portland, he had a roommate with this guy who was just his best friend. They did everything together. And in their living room, he committed suicide. 
And so my friend is on drugs. He's in the darkest point of his life. And he's like, well, I think I might, I might as well just end it. There's no point to living. There's no, nothing good going on. But he remembered my, wife, my mom, she always found truth in the Bible. She always got hope in the Bible. So maybe if I look in there, I'll find some hope. I'll find some reason. And if I don't, then I'll say I gave it my best shot. But I'm going to try and find some hope. And he did, and he's a real rock star believer now. He's one of my best friends. And so I really think it's so important that we be people, not only just men, but also moms who we show our kids there's truth here, there's hope here. And guess what? You don't have to be perfect at it. Saul is like the most imperfect dude in the whole Bible, but he's got good kids. And I think it's because he tried. He spent time with his kids. He invested in his kids. And so maybe you go, okay, well, how do I do that? Practically, how do I invest in my kids? Tell me, how do I do like a devotional with my kids? Because I've tried it and it's a nightmare. Well, there's one of my favorite pastors. His name is Timothy Keller. And he was doing this live stream. It was this marriage conference. And um, he just did this whole marriage conference. His wife, Kathy, is with him. And he does this question and answer time. And one of the congregation members said, hey, how do I do a devotional with my kids? Because it's been a nightmare. And as this person's asking this, Kathy's laughing. Like she can barely control herself. And Tim's just looking at his wife like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she goes, tell him, Tim. And he goes, I did that one time with my boys. I sat them down and I said, okay, boys, we're gonna have a Bible study today. Open up your Bible. And he said it was such a nightmare. He never did it again. It totally flopped for him. And maybe that's just his kids. Maybe your kids are the kind that you could sit them down and you can teach them and go, this is the Bible. And they, they love it. They eat it up, but it didn't work for him. And he's sitting in front of his church. And he says, you guys know, I can teach a sermon better than most of you here. And they all laughed. And he goes, so here's what worked for me. I took each one of my kids individually. Once a week, we went out and we went for a walk or we went out to lunch. Or we just went for a really long drive. And I spent some quality time with my kid where I didn't get on my phone. I didn't answer email. I just spent time with my kids and it just organically happened. They start speaking they, and you start asking questions. Hey, what's going on? How's, how's your job going? How's, how's school going? What's your friend? How are your friends doing? And you just talk and the kids will open up and then you're able to speak into their lives. And ultimately the goal is that they would be able to go when they get into a rough part in life. Or they'll be able to know that even right now they can come to you and that you'll go to your, the, your God on their behalf, that they would know as they get older, man, in hard times, my dad always knew where to go. My mom always knew where to go. I can look there too. I think Moses is the person he is today because he had a godly father. Verse three, Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. This can be really hard for us to think of. Think about God in this way. I mean, do you look at God and you say, my God's a God of war. Do you, when you think of Jesus, do you ever think of Jesus as your warrior God? It's kind of funny. Like, can God really be a warrior? Can God really be a God of war? Because 1 John 4, 7 through 8 says this, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Well, the Bible says God is love. 
Man of war doesn't sound very loving, does it? As Americans, we're the most comfortable, safe, secure group of human beings who has ever existed. We have more opportunity and more resources available at our fingertips than any other group or civilization that has ever been on the world, on the planet. And I think we often forget that for the majority of human history, and including the majority of the world today, lived under intense oppression. They lived underneath land owners who would come and bludgeon the farmer and steal the cattle, steal their possessions, take away their land, take away everything. They're oppressed, they're enslaved. The majority of the world needed a God who would fight for them, who would free them from oppression, just like God did with the Israelites. They needed a God that could bring them comfort and hope when their world was quite literally hopeless, when they were filled with a world of injustice and oppression. God is often pictured in the Bible as a man of war. And on top of that, with all this craziness going on in the world, with everything going on in our backyard, it can get very easy to get consumed with the physical what's going on with people and what's going on around us where it can get really easy to forget that there actually is a very real spiritual battle going on for the lives and souls of every human being on the planet. That there really is a demonic force that is fighting for the lives of people. I mean, you see it in Daniel chapter 10 where you have this really strange situation where Daniel is praying and seeking the Lord And God sends Gabriel as a messenger to go speak and bring comfort to Daniel. And he can't get to him because there's a demonic force that stops him, that gets in his way. I think it's really easy for us as believers in the middle of this kind of craziness to forget there's actually a very real spiritual battle. And the enemy loves tools like fear and anxiety and this kind of separation from people where people get isolated that there really is a battle going on. And this continues through the New Testament. Ephesians chapter six, verse 12 says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our God is a God of war. And he fights so that people who are in distress and pain can find comfort and healing. If he didn't, he couldn't be called a God of love. I mean, I think about it in a more simple term as just like if there's a dog who's coming to hurt my kids. Well, the loving thing would not be to love that dog through it and just encourage my kids through their pain. No, the loving thing would be to get in the way of that dog and do whatever I can to stop that to fight for my kid's behalf, uh, on my kid's behalf, to get in the middle of the battle. And that's what our God does. He does not shy away from conflict. Well, what about Jesus? Can you look at Jesus and say, Jesus is a God of war? Well, here's 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Our God does not shy away from conflict. Our God will go to battle for you. And I think too often we forget that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. 
I think too often we get so consumed with what our neighbor's doing or how our spouse is reacting or what our kids are doing or what the people who are in charge are enforcing on us or saying, and we get all caught up in flesh and blood and we forget. No, there's a real spiritual battle, a real battle. I mean, when was the last time that you actually prayed like your husband was going into battle, like your kids were going into battle? Because your kids every day are facing temptation and difficulty and real struggle from the enemy every single day. When was the last time that you prayed as they go to school, you go, God, watch over my kid, especially now when they're being schooled at home and you also got to pray for their teacher. It's really hard. When was the last time you prayed for your spouse as if he was going to battle? You actually prayed like you were in a battle for your spouse because your spouse is going to be going into a workplace full of temptation where there's people he works with who don't care how his marriage is going. People he works with who are going to talk and they're going to share stuff and there's going to be conversation and he's going to be facing, she's going to be facing a lot of hardship and difficulty and temptation. When was the last time we really prayed for our spouses, our kids, those around us, our neighbors, our politicians, like they're in a battle and that we need a God who will fight for them on their side? I think we need to do that more. Verse four, Pharaoh's chariots and his host, he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. Warrior God. Revelation 19, God is still a warrior. God came as a suffering servant and he comes back as a conquering king. Jesus will be described as did that coming back as the wrath of the lamb. You ever seen an angry lamb? It's such a strange combination of words, but we serve a warrior God, a God of war. Verse seven, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. That's some imagery for you in song. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Why do we have a warrior king? Why do we have a God of war? Well, in John 10, verse 10, Jesus says that he came so we can have life and have life more abundantly. We have an enemy who's like a thief who comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. There is a real enemy. And Jesus on the cross, Martin Luther would say the most important thing that happened is called Christus Victor, that Jesus has had victory over the enemy. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah 65 that there will come a time where there's a new heaven and a new earth and everything will be made right. And that the child will play with the snake and it's all gonna be good, but the serpent is there and he eats dust all the days of his life. That Jesus has had victory over the enemy and will see it for eternity. Verse 10, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead 
in the mighty waters. We sing because our team has won. That the victory that God brought through parting the Red Sea and the people being able to come through is their victory. Like the great imagery of it that the Bible provides for us is David and Goliath. You have all of the Israelites who are scared and you have the Philistines who is a great opposing, difficult, evil force. And they decide, okay, here's what we're gonna do. You send out a champion, we'll send out a champion. His loss means that you will be, all of you, slaves to us and your children will be slaves to us forever. But his victory will be your victory and we will be your slaves. And you know the story. David goes out in his weakness. Despite everyone else being afraid, he's the only one and he's able to take down Goliath and his victory is counted as the Israelites' victory. And when we look at that story, sometimes we like to look at it and say, oh man, if you just have enough faith, all your enemies will come down. But you and I, we're not supposed to look at that story and say, oh yeah, I'm like David. We're supposed to look at that story and say, I'm like the Israelites. I'm too afraid to face the great enemy. I'm too afraid to go in there and face my giants. But we have a warrior God. We have a God of war who's not afraid, who goes in to face the enemy and his victory is counted as our victory. We sing because our team won. And just like when you get all dressed up on a Sunday because your sports team is gonna go and they're gonna win and then they throw the touchdown and it it lands and then you celebrate and your spouse looks at you like you're crazy because you're celebrating as if you're the one who threw it. We celebrate just like that because our team won. That's how our praise should be. My God's had victory. My God's overcome. That's how we sing. Next, we look at the incomparability of God. The next six verses, verse 11. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? There are other spiritual forces. There are other little g gods. But these gods are not like the creator God. Our God is the only God who creates. Our God is the only God who can tell the beginning from the end. Our God is the only God who's in control. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. There's a word there. It's that steadfast love that means hesed. It's a very important word in the Bible. And how do all the other gods, how do they lead? They lead by guilt. They lead by pressure. They lead by pain. God, he leads through his hesed. He leads through his steadfast love. Our God doesn't wait for you to wake up in the morning and feed him rice or to sacrifice to him. Our God, he acts because he loves you. Our God, he leads you because he loves you. Our God brings you good things and provides for you and has a plan for your life, not because of the things that you do, but because he has love for you that's steadfast, that doesn't deplete based on the bad things you do and doesn't get stronger based on the good things you do. Our God leads us because he loves us. And we know it's his love, it's ultimately his kindness that brings us to him, that brings us to repentance because we know we have a God who loves us, a God who will go to battle for us because of how much he loves us. Verse 14, The peoples have heard, they tremble. 
pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Yahweh, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have redeemed. What is redemption? It's being owned by something. And then someone purchases it, you. That's redemption. And now, because Jesus has purchased us, we belong to him and no one else. No one else can lay claim to us. No one else is like our God. We serve an incomparable God. No other God would give himself for us. We are under attack from an enemy. And when we look at all that is going around us, all that's going around in our world, it can seem super overwhelming until we remember who our God is. And it reminds me of this book called Lamentations, what we see right here. Because right here, you see Moses saying, yeah, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Midianites, all the Canaanites, they're freaking out because of how strong and how great our God is. They've got perspective of who the Lord is. And I think you and me, when we look at all of our problems and they're laid out before us, they kind of look like a bunch of armies with swords and training. And we're just a bunch of Israelites where we've got no training and we've got no way to defend ourselves. But when we bring in how great and strong and amazing our God is, all of a sudden we realize those things that we're afraid of are actually terrified of our God. If you look at Lamentations chapter, well, the first three chapters, you have a guy who loves the Lord saying things like this, though, which maybe resonates with where you're at. This is um, chapter three, verse 17, just a portion. The whole book is filled with stuff like this. My soul is bereft of peace. I've got no peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. But then in verse 31, something changes. All of a sudden, he focuses on the incomparability of God and that there's no one like him in all the earth. Look at the change in verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but, thro- but though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. There's that word hesed again. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the most high, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the most high that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. It's so easy for us to look at everything going around us and be overwhelmed, to look at all the problems facing us and go, it's too much for me. But when you focus on the incomparability of our God, I think it leads you just like with this prophet to praise, saying, okay, I'm going to lift up my hands because I can serve a God that's so much greater and stronger than anything else in this world. And then finally, the forward-looking and anticipation, verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Yahweh will reign forever 
and ever. In contrast to Pharaoh, who's got a limited lifetime, in contrast to all those who follow Pharaoh, who's got a limited lifetime, we serve a God who will reign forever and ever. And you and I are called not to follow him so that one day we can be slaves and servants to a new master, but we're promised an inheritance in a future land where we will reign as kings and queens in partnership with our God forever. We are inheritors of a future land, a future promise greater than anything that this world could even comprehend. And that's where the song ends. But here's the interesting thing that happens. The whole nation sings and rejoices in it. Verse 19, for when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophet, prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea. They sing it over and over again. This is what my God has done for me. This is how great and incredible my God is who saved me. These are the plans that he has for me. They sing and they sing and they're excited. And then this chapter ends with the first of the wilderness experiences that the Israelites will face. Bitter water made sweet, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. It could be really easy to look at what's happening here. And you see in the preceding chapter, the Red Sea opens up and all the Israelites are able to cross through and this amazing thing happens and they sing praising God and they're all excited to look at them right now and go, oh yeah, this is gonna be fine. But you gotta put yourself in their shoes. That They've got children with them. They got wives with them. And for three days, they haven't found any water. And now a mom is looking at her kid with blisters on her lips because she's so thirsty and hasn't had water in three days, they're getting a little upset. They're getting a little disgruntled. They're getting a little scared. And I think it's so true for us that we only really have faith and trust when we have to have faith and trust. And sometimes these things that are really difficult and can be scary and it seems like certain death, it really shows us what we actually are, who we really put our trust in. And maybe these last few months, that's been really revealing for you, where it seems like, God, this is like certain death. Come on, God, you got to help me. Where are you? It can be really revealing for us who we put our trust in, who we put our faith in. And here's what happens next. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. How disappointing is that? They finally get to water and they can't drink it. It's bad to drink. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to Yahweh and Yahweh showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh, your God, and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by 
the water. You have this interesting exchange where God says, if you keep my statutes, if you keep my commands, well, we're not at Sinai yet. So what commands and what statutes are we talking about? God's saying, if you do this, then I'll do this. It's all of the Old Testament. If you, then I. Well, I think what they're drawing on, I think what they're expected to understand and know is the same thing that happened with Abraham. That God said, if you obey, if you listen, if you keep my charge, if you keep my laws, then I will bless you and you'll be the inheritor, the father of many nations, that you'll bless everyone. And if you're like Abraham, you get no diseases. If you're like Abraham, I'll protect you. If you're like Abraham, I'll walk with you. And what did Abraham do? Genesis 15 tells us, and he believed. He believed and God did the work. And here's the last thing that I was thinking about as I was looking at this chapter. Is it so awesome that they cross the Red Sea and they sing and they're all excited about who their God is, that they serve an incomparable God, that they serve a God who's got a future promise for them and a God who's a warrior and that their team has won and he offers them victory. But how much better would it have been for them, for everyone, if they had worshiped on the other side of the Red Sea? That when all of the Egyptians were coming down to get them, what if they had worshiped and praised then? How different would it be for their kids? How different would it be for the way that they go through hardship? And it reminds me of in Acts, you have this story of Paul and Silas where they just get beaten. Their backs are all flayed open. They're, they've got open wounds and then they get put in prison and they get put in the lowest part of prison. And in these old gnarly prisons, everything kind of funneled down and they're in the lowest spot, which what that means is they're shackled with their backs to the ground where all the sewage would run, where all the nastiness would go, where all the bad stuff would go. I mean, if someone's worried about catching a disease, Paul's going to get it. And Paul and Silas, while they're in there, they don't have any expectations for what's going to happen. They have no idea what's next, but he's pretty certain he needs to see a doctor soon. Things are just bad. And they're down in the prison and together they start worshiping and they start singing hymns to God. And they're, they're just praising, oh man, don't we have such a good king? Don't we have such a good God? When they're in literally the worst circumstance. And what happens is, in an event that only God could do, everyone's bonds are loosed. Everyone's handcuffs are opened. All of the prison doors open, but all of the people in them, they don't leave. They don't take it as an opportunity like you and I might just go, okay, peace, I'm out. Instead, they stay because they watched Paul and Silas. They're like, these guys know something. I want to talk to these guys more. And the Bible tells us a guard came down and he looked in and he saw that all the doors were open and he took out his sword and he was going to fall on it because he knew that if he lost a prisoner, it'd be his life, maybe even his family's life. And it looks like he lost them all. But Paul and Silas, they say, wait, we're still here. We're all still here. And because of the way that Paul and Silas worshiped God before God did something, because of the way they were in faithful anticipation of their God doing something miraculous that couldn't be expected, there were people who got saved. The Bible tells us that the guardsmen in all of his household we're saved through that event. You guys, right now, you're in a really hard spot, maybe. You might be in the most different, unique, difficult circumstances that as a family you've ever been in before. And right now, we have opportunity to worship through it. And know this, you have people just like Paul and Silas did watching you. It might be your spouse. It might just be your kids but it might also be anyone who knows you're a Christian, your employer, your coworker, your neighbors. 
And they're going to look at you and see how you go through hard times. Because it's one thing when you're on the other side of it to get together and praise and worship and talk about how good God is, which is true. It's a whole nother thing when you're in a really dark valley to praise and worship and sing about how good your God is, because that's going to be compelling to your kids, to your spouse, to your neighbors, because they're going to go, that guy's God must be real because he's different. He's incomparable to what the world has seen. He's so different to what I'm seeing other people do. I need to stand with him and ask him, hey, tell me more about your God. You guys, let's be people that when we worship, others would go, I want to know about your God. So Jesus, thank you so much that you are our God, that you're a God of war, that you go to battle for us, that there's nothing else in the world that compares to you. And I'm thankful that because of the work you've done on our behalf, because you've crushed the, vic- the enemy underneath your feet, because you've had victory, we have a future hope, unlike anything that this world could ever offer us. And even in the poverty of this world, we have riches beyond compare waiting for us. And even in the pain and in the sickness and the difficulty of this world, we have new bodies, new life in you awaiting us. So Jesus, we pray right now as we're on this side of eternity that we be those who praise every day knowing that we serve a God who's unlike anything else, that we serve a God who loves us, who leads us in steadfast love. And it's in your name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have an awesome week. Spend time with Jesus.